Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Valley Hope, for having me back two weeks in a row. But then after this, it'll be a while again. I don't have another date on the calendar yet. Uh, today, we are going to read from Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. A little Bible trivia. Thessalonica is a city in Greece, and there's some debate on whether or not 1 Thessalonians or Galatians are the oldest books in the New Testament, the first ones to be composed. So you can tuck that away and whip it out and impress someone sometime. But we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which is at the end of the book. And so to set our context to know what is leading Paul's thought up to this place in chapter 5, I want to give a, a broad context to the first four chapters of the book. Broadly speaking, 1 Thessalonians is a letter which Paul writes to the Christians in the city of Thessalonica just to check in and see how they're doing since he was there the last time. He expresses great joy to hear that their faith has increased rather than diminished since he is gone. It's actually grown and news of their faith in Christ has spread to other regions around them. He acknowledges the fact that they've been suffering mistreatment from their countrymen and assures them that rather than meaning they're doing something wrong, being punished for it, it actually means that they're truly following Christ because he also endured suffering from his countrymen. He gives them some instructions in chapter 4 on how to live a holy life now that they belong to a holy God. And then he offers them comfort about some people in their church, in their family of believers there who have died since he was their last. And he assures them that not even being dead will separate them from living again when the Lord Jesus returns. When he returns, the return of Jesus is a constant theme in 1 Thessalonians. And then we arrive at chapter 5 here, which we will read verses 1 through 11. Oh, it's back here if you need to reference. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they won't escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day, we don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let's not be like others who are asleep, but let's be alert, self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us 
so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you're doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God, add your blessing to the reading of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Paul refers to the return of Christ as the day of the Lord. The return of Christ is an essential Christian doctrine. Jesus said that after he died and rose again, he would leave, but he would come back. When we confess the creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, both of them say, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, that explains about his death and resurrection, and he will come again someday to judge the living and the dead. And Paul refers to this day as the day of the Lord, but this isn't a, a random phrase which he has just made up. The day of the Lord is a phrase loaded with meaning and which is found throughout the Old Testament prophets. In the prophets, they describe the day of the Lord as the time when God will come to the earth to unleash his wrath and justice on wickedness, sin, and disobedience. That's not very popular to say today. Talk about God having wrath is not in vogue. And if I can be honest, it feels slightly uncomfortable to talk about such a weighty topic. But Paul mentions the word wrath three times just in this epistle alone. And so we can't gloss over it or pretend like it's not there. We have to consider it. So let's think about wrath for a second. You ever sitting next to somebody in a waiting room and you're like, hey man, you want to think about wrath? We're going to do that. Why is it taboo today to say that God has wrath? Because we, we have wrath. You can ask my wife, when we're driving through the Montreat Gate and somebody slows down to five miles per hour, I unleash my wrath verbally upon those people. More seriously, however, think about stories of abuse that you hear, abuse against elderly people or against children, don't you think to yourself, if I could get my hands on the person who perpetrated that, I would show them my wrath in one way or another. But God is an infinite being, and we're finite. God is the wholly self-existent being, and so if I get to become wrathful over trivial things like people driving too slowly, Why shouldn't God be allowed to be wrathful when people murder other people that he created? Isn't God allowed to be wrathful when we verbally abuse people that he values and loves? Or when we, his creation, shake our fists at him and say, we don't need you, God, we can do this without you. Or when we abuse and destroy the world that he created Doesn't he seem justified in having wrath? This is a scriptural concept. It's not cool to talk about God's wrath today, but 
it's scriptural and it's logical for an infinitely holy, just God. And I also suggest it's desirable for us to think that God has wrath. Specifically because we see the brokenness in the world, there has to be some type of just end for the things that we see. Someone to come and make things right and to judge the wickedness that we see, the abuse and the the sin that we see around us. Someone has to be able to judge that. And God's wrath in Scripture is primarily associated with this coming day of the Lord. One prophet, Zephaniah, mentions it. I'll read from the prophet Zephaniah chapter 1 a bit. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I'll bring distress on the people, and they'll walk like blind men, because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he'll make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. According to Paul, at the time that Jesus returns to the earth, he will bring with him this wrath and judgment of God. We don't know when it will take place. Paul describes it as coming like a thief in the night. And his primary concern is not to figure out when it comes, but rather how we should be living until it does. But he does say that though we don't know when it's coming, it's not a shock or a surprise for those in Christ. He says, brothers, meaning the Christian family, brothers and sisters, you aren't in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're sons of light, sons of the day. And he uses this contrasting image of belonging to the daytime or the light and belonging to the nighttime and the darkness. And he says that those of us who belong to light should be awake, alert, and self-controlled. And then in verse 8, that our lives should be characterized by faith and love and hope. The reason you have to be awake and alert to demonstrate these things is because they're not passive activities. You don't naturally have love. You don't naturally have hope. We must choose to hope in God when trouble comes. We must choose to love and to ask him to help us love and to live with faith in our daily lives. This image of light 
is used in other places in Scripture. In Colossians chapter 1, for example, Paul says that he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In 1 Thessalonians, he calls these Christian believers children of the daytime who should stay awake and alert and self-controlled. To be awake is the opposite of sleeping, obviously. To contrast with what he says about being awake and alert, he says those for whom the day of the Lord is surprising, they're like people who sleep. Now, it's not literal sleeping. Sleeping is good for you. You need it for your brain and rest and stuff. But as the image of being unaware, literally being unconscious of what's happening around us, people who belong to darkness, who don't believe in Christ, who don't expect his return someday, are in darkness. And he uses the images of being asleep and being drunk to show this lack of awareness of what's going on, the lack of awareness of God's reality and the work that he's doing in his son. Unconsciousness, unawareness, and drunkenness as well. Drunkenness is unbiblical, both literal drunkenness and also as an image of being without control, unable to make discerning choices, not being able to give thought to your actions, to be unaware of what's going on around you. Both of these, Paul says, are the complete opposite of people who expect the return of the Lord. In life, rather than unawareness, gliding through, not giving thought to how we live, not giving heed to God's reality, we should be awake and alert. Jesus says, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest, he tells his disciples, Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Of course, there they were literally falling asleep. But it's the same principle, alertness, readiness, knowing what's going on. And back in 1 Thessalonians in verse 3, Paul uses another image that's very popular in the prophets. He says in verse 3 that while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. This is hearkening back to the times when the Old Testament prophets would denounce false prophets. Those are people who push everyone's attention away from what's really going on and say, everything's fine. Don't worry about what you're doing. God's not paying attention. He doesn't care what you're doing. He's not coming in judgment. Everything is okay. An example of the type of false assurances and false voices that Paul has in mind, we read in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13 which he says, 
The prophet says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, they all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it weren't serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there's no peace. False prophets tell us that God isn't concerned, God's not working, and there's no end coming. So what I want us to consider is what are the voices today promising us peace and safety? Maybe literal voices or things in our culture which are, have this ability to push our attention away from the Word of God, away from the fact that God exists and evil exists and judgment is coming on those things and that Jesus is coming back. For me, that voice is plain old comfort. I think sometimes how much easier life would be if I didn't have to think about all this heavy stuff and I could just live a comfortable life with maybe a nice house, maybe enough money. For example, Samantha and I like to watch HGTV in the mornings before work. We watch this show called Caribbean Life, where people shop for houses on Caribbean islands. And I catch myself thinking, man, wouldn't it be great if all this dumb seminary stuff, dumb church stuff, heavy ethical responsibility and sin, God and all that stuff, wouldn't it just be better to just sit on an island and live that way? In a gourmet kitchen. That's what she would like. Wouldn't it be better if I didn't have to answer to God and I could just live without thought about the outside world or the reality of suffering and of evil in the world? I could just, I could just do that. It also doesn't help that my job, I work on elevators, so I'm going in these opulent houses all the time, and I'm like, man, if I could just, if I could just achieve what these people have, then I wouldn't have stress and wouldn't have to deal with all this stuff that I think about all the time. And so for the rest of us here in the room, I'm sure we each have our various voices which say, hey man, peace and security is right here. Don't worry about this over here. Fulfillment is over here. Your safety, your comfort is over here. Don't, don't look at the rest of the world. Don't look at what God's doing. But Paul says that anything which says this to us is illusory if it's not the trustworthy voice of Jesus alone. Because God does exist. Jesus is Lord. Pain and suffering and evil do exist, and he really is coming back someday. No amount of material or social distractions we heap into our lives can change that. And how many people today who have those things anyway still wrestle with crushing depression and loneliness and aimlessness and addiction? So rather than listen to these things, which have proved themselves futile again and again, which promise peace and security and safety, but are hollow promises. Paul says that the real assurance, the real way not to be surprised by these things, the real way to have peace and safety is to be a child of light in the kingdom of God, belonging to his son, Jesus. Rather than listen to these voices, let Jesus tell you where peace is to be found. 
And here's really the crux of the matter. In verse 9, Paul says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint us for wrath. We, as tough as it is to hear, are lumped in with the recipients of wrath because of sins. But it's not God's desire that we would receive wrath, but rather salvation through his Son. Jesus died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, meaning alive or dead, not the awake and asleep he mentioned earlier, whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. In Peter's second epistle, he says, The Lord is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all may come to repentance. And in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, back at the beginning of this epistle, Paul says, He hears that the Thessalonians have turned to God from idols in order to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Salvation is rescue from God's wrath. Yes, God is wrathful and God is just, and he is serious about disobedience and he's serious about the ways that his world has been corrupted, but Jesus is the rescuer from that. And as much as we talk about God's wrath, we can and must also talk about God's mercy and his care and his provision. For us... The call is to live not as asleep, not as passively floating through life, hearing God's word, but not giving it heed, listening to peace and safety from these other things, giving our attention and our confidence to these things over here, but to be alert and awake, not like someone who's asleep, not drunk, either literally or figuratively, but alert and aware And then, as I mentioned, Paul says, we put on faith and hope and love. Those things characterize us. And those things, faith and hope and love, are kind of glib today anyway. Oh, well, eat, pray, love. Right? It's not a Julia Roberts movie. Or hope. Something about hope in Julia Roberts. But this is substantive. This is real faith on a daily basis in the Lord whose plan of redemption is through his son Jesus who was dead and is alive and is coming back. It's an active hope that when various things happen in our lives, when we look ahead to the future or we look out to the world and everything seems hopeless and depressed, hope in God who is standing there ready to receive us, ready to rescue us and to pour out his mercy on us. Not hope in numbing the pain, or in achieving maybe just enough comfort to scrape through another day, but true peace, joy, and safety in the God who's making all things new through Jesus. A couple of important passages. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus speaks of the peace that he brings. All of this I have spoken while still with you. 
But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, and I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. And then each Sunday, when we celebrate Holy Communion, we read from 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're a people oriented to a future time when the Lord is coming back. And he is coming with judgment and wrath, but he's also coming with grace and with love for those of us who trust in him, such that we don't have need to be afraid, like Jesus just said in John. I said a moment ago, as much as we talk about God's wrath, we have to also talk about his care and kindness. God has both of them perfectly because he is perfect. And so I read that dizzying account from the prophet Zephaniah earlier about the day of the Lord. But let me read the same prophet, just one chapter over. Zephaniah chapter 3. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I'll stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you won't be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me. Because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They'll speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They'll eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they'll say to Jerusalem, Don't fear, O Zion. Don't let your hands hang limp. For the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I'll remove from you, for they're a burden and a reproach to you. And at that time I'll deal with all who oppressed you. I'll rescue the lame and gather those who've been scattered I'll give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I'll gather you. At that time, I'll bring you home. I'll give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord.
And though this is a heavy topic and difficult to hear sometimes, Paul concludes his letter not with a note of warning, but with this promise. The benediction to 1 Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord, for all the things you are, rescuer, brother to us, friend, savior, king. Remind us of who you are, Lord Jesus, each day. Remind us to have faith, hope, and love And remind us to look forward to when you're coming back, not with fear, but with delight and expectation. Amen.